Open up to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And during this time, while you're opening up your your Bibles, we are going to be receiving uh, the offering. And uh, before we we start, I want to kind of share a conversation that Laura and I have been having. And I have her permission this time. Sometimes I kind of throw it on her and look at it and say, hey, is it okay if I share this in the mid-sermon? But this is one of those things that we, we have been uh, talking about. Uh, part of it has been talk, we've been talking about this because of uh, walking with Todd and Manda through premarital about men and women and roles and responsibilities and how does the family work. We've been talking about that. But we've also been talking about it in just between us. And this is, here's the question. What, what makes a truly admirable man and what makes a truly admirable woman? And I'm not talking about, man, he's got gifts or she's got some amazing talents and, or I'm not talking about external beauty features or how handsome and rugged he looks. What truly makes a man admirable? Or what truly makes a woman admirable? And one of the conclusions that I came up with and I presented to Laura, which has created quite a, a discussion, a stir in our family, is that no man is truly admirable who does not have a measure of the more feminine qualities. Let me say that again. And some of you guys are going, whoa, 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 back up the bus. No man is truly admirable who does not have a measure of the more feminine qualities. And no woman is truly admirable who does not have a measure of the more masculine qualities. Now think about it. A woman who acts too much like a man we regard as unnatural, don't we? Honestly, when I look at the bodybuilding uh, things, and I, yeah, some of you are already cringing. We're done, right? And you go, ooh, I'm uncomfortable, you know? You look at that and go, that's almost unnatural. Um, we may pity, pity them or we might be offended by them, but we don't admire them, truly admire them. And a man who acts too much like a woman, we regard as unnatural. We may pity him or may even be offended by them, but we don't, we don't admire him. But neither do we admire a man who is just all man. And you know the kind of man that I'm talking about, kind of the overly Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, I have no brain in my head, I'm all muscle, and I just, I'm, I'm brute force in everything that I do. I don't talk without thinking. I have no compassion about me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost a bully, and all I can do is kind of be bare grillis and live out in nature and pee on trees, you know, because I'm all man. Or you got the other extreme, don't you, uh, for women, who is, she's all women, She's delicate, and you don't touch her, and there's, she can't make a decision, and she's just, every, you, you talk to her, and she just what? She breaks down and cries. And there's just like that other end, and you go, it's like, okay, all man is neither admirable, and all woman is neither admirable, right? 
And so we're trying to figure out what truly makes somebody admirable. Okay, think about, I don't know if any of you have ever been to an all-male uh, chorus, heard a group of men sing. How many of you have ever seen that? A professional group, not like Missy O'Dade style, but like all men. It is an amazing thing where you have everything from these guys will hit the absolute bottom register of, of voices and then you will have these guys who can sing at the absolute top. And when they come together and sing, it is absolutely heaven. It's harmony. And you just sit back, and especially if it's a cappella, there's that echo and you just go, that was absolutely beautiful. Or you have the same with an all-women chorus the highest of heights that can absolutely shatter glass, and women whose voices are low and deep and beautiful and soothing. People who know music know what balance is, right? And people who are good judges of character know what balance and blend is admirable in a person too. The highest and the, the deepest and most admirable beauties in my life, are not the simple things. They're complex. So this morning, the reason that I mention this is not because I want to talk about the difference between male and female, um, even though I don't mind talking about those things. But I simply want to illustrate the principle of, of beauty or excellence or Something that, or someone who is worthy of our admiration and our, our ultimately our worship. And I want you to think seriously today about what makes a person truly beautiful, excellent, admirable, praiseworthy. And my goal is that you will come to see ultimately that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as the one who is irresistibly admirable, and irresistibly excellent and praiseworthy, and that you would be drawn to love him. So where does this come from, Revelation? Follow with me in Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and each holding a harp and bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people of God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. This is the word of the Lord. The principle I am trying to illustrate, and that makes Jesus stand out absolutely unique, is this beauty or excellence in the right proportion of diverse qualities is amazing. For example, let's talk about Jesus. We admire him for his glory, but even more so because his glory is mingled with absolute humility. Lion, lamb. We admire him for his transcendence, his, his otherliness, but even more so because his transcendence is accompanied by his condensa- condensa- condensation, condensa- condescending, his coming down. We admire him for his uncompromising justice, but even more so because it is tempered with mercy. We admire him for his majesty, but even more so because it is a majesty with meekness. We admire him because of his equality with God, but even more so because as God's equal, he nevertheless had a deep reverence for God. We admire him because of how worthy he is of all good, and even more because he was accompanied by an amazing patience to suffer evil. We admire him because of his sovereign dominion over the whole world, but even more so because this dominion was clothed in a spirit of obedience and submission. We love how he interacted with the the scribes and the Pharisees with all of his wisdom, and we love it even more because he can be as simple enough to be with children. And spend time with him. The list can go on and on and on. This Jesus that we love is complex. Absolutely complex. And as his people who have been created in the image of God, we are complex. But the focus is not on us this morning. The focus is on Jesus who is worthy to be praised, who, who desires our whole lives to be given to him. It's, he is absolutely complex. It is a coming together in one person of perfect balance and proportion of extremely diverse qualities that we love Jesus. And that's what makes Jesus so absolutely irresistible. The human heart 
Our hearts were made to stand in awe of Jesus. We were made to admire Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We were made to admire him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We are created, our hearts were created to yearn and desire him. And if your heart is not taken up too much with him, we don't need to look any farther as to why you may be experiencing spiritual frustration in your life. If your heart is not captivated by all that he is, we know why. There was a Franciscan monk, um, Bonaventure, who was, who was asked by one of his students, why don't men love God more? And his response, they don't love him because they don't know him. So my prayer is that as we look into the very throne room of God, as we get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, who is the line of the tribe of Judah, who is a lamb who was slain in perfect proportions, my prayer is this morning, we will love and trust him no matter what the cost. So looking at, I want to start with Revelation chapter 5. John is receiving a vision of the throne room of heaven. And right there, one of the elders says to him, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has done what? He has, he has conquered. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus here is described as a lion. As, as an animal who makes prey of others, who is strong and wild and majestic and absolutely dangerous. There is not one of us who would feel absolutely comfortable. I love the, the C.S. Lewis, the picture of this absolutely majestic animal. And there's always a bit of fear when the children are with him. How many of us would love to be, even though it's kind of, they're domiciled, they're kind of domesticated, be dropped into the middle of uh, Brookfield Zoo's lion den. All of us, unless you're really all male, have this, I may die here. I never know. And immediately we have this picture of Jesus who is this dynamic, majestic, powerful God. But then in verse 6, John is allowed to see this, lamp, this lion. He hears that there is this lion who is able to open the scrolls and break open the seals, and he turns to see. And what does he turn and see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. So the lion is a lamb, an animal that is easily preyed upon, that is weak, that is harmless, that is lowly, sheared for our clothes and killed for our food. So here's the point I want to make this morning. Because Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, 
He has the right to bring the world to the end for the glory of his name and the good of his people because of who he is. He has the right to execute God's plans in our life. So there's three observations I want us to see this morning of how the truth comes out of this text. First, the first thing is that God's absolutely in control of all history and everything that happens in it. God's absolute control of all history. That's the point of verse 1. Because you see, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the... Give me help me out here, folks. He was seated on the... So he was seated on the throne. And what did he have? A scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. What, what is this scroll and with its writing on both sides, what, what is this all about? The scroll represents the decrees of God concerning what will happen in the future. You can see this in chapter 6 as, as one of the seals is broken open and more and more is revealed of the judgments that's coming on earth. Opening the first seal in, in six verse, uh, chapter 6, one through, 1 through 2, reveals a, a rider on a white horse going out to conquer. You see it in 3 and 4, a red horse revealing how in the days leading up to the end of the world, men will slay one another with the sword. And it keeps on going on and on and on that the one who opens it, he's opening it because he has, de- he's holding it because he has written it and he has decreed it. So this scroll contains God's plans for the future. The struggles and the victories of the gospel as well as the judgment for those who reject it. And notice that the scroll is in the right hand of God in verse 1. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. It was in his right hand and throughout scripture anytime it is the right hand it is the hand of strength, the hand of absolute authority. So God holds all the future, all the future in his right hand. He wrote the script of what will take place. No one can change it. He has it in his own right hand. Nobody else is holding it. If the kingdom of Christ finally conquers and judgment finally falls on an unbelieving world, it will be because God holds all things firmly in his hand. Notice that he's seated on a throne. This simply confirms that he rules the universe. All that was created was created by him, for him, through him. The completeness of his rule and the perfection of his decrees is signified by the fact that the scroll is written on the front and the back. It is in absolute completeness. There is no more room for any other scribbles, any kind of dots, or any kind of any other words. It is filled. So this is God's way of saying, listen, I, I know, Stephen, you think you're in control and that you can write your own script. Ultimately, you are not God. I I am in control. I know all things. 
So what does this mean for us? What can we learn about this? Is that we ought to submit. We ought to submit to the authority of our king. The one who's seated on the throne. Who knows all things. And this picture of God's sovereign rule over us should bring us both comfort but yet reverence and fear. It also goes on. The second observation is that we need to notice is that no creature was worthy to open the scroll. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. There was not a person, there was nobody who was worthy to open the scrolls. And when the scrolls, the seal was broken, it basically meant whoever received it. So if a messenger came to your house with a scroll and it had seals on it and you broke the seals, you were the one who was called to execute it. Not not your little people on the side. You were ultimately responsible to execute the decrees in the scroll. And so you have a a, a strong angel. We don't know if it's Michael or we don't know if it's Gabriel. Nobody knows. That's not the point here. But a strong angel came forward and said, Who's worthy? Deafening silence. No one knows. And there's not a person who is worthy to open the scroll to execute God's divine history. There's nobody worthy. And what does John do? Now, before I get there, someone has got to be able to open the scroll. Why is it absolutely necessary that somebody opens the scroll? It's because it is the plan of redemption. Something must be done to demonstrate the righteousness of God. If the opening of the scroll is going to bring infinite blessing upon repentance uh, sinners who deserve only condemnation and eternal separation from God, Something must be done. And if God were to open the scroll, God the Father were to open the scroll by himself without a mediator. Think about that. Without a mediator, without any go-between, and deal directly with sinful humanity, we would all be consumed. You hear throughout Scripture that he is a holy God, and there can be no sin before him. He is a holy, holy God. And if God would deal directly with humanity, we would be obliterated. But God knows that someone must be found who is worthy to open it. So we learn here that God is a God of love. Because he will not open the seals of history without the hands of a Savior. Praise God. And second, we got to know that no one, not your friend, your spouse, a parent, a child, a boss, a teacher, no one but Jesus 
can make your future bright. Not your job, not your finances, not a degree, not your sense of masculinity or femininity. I can never do it. Femininity. None of those things will make your future bright or hopeful. It's only Jesus. Without him, all is hopeless. All is hopeless. But John, he's seeing all these things. He hears the deafening quiet of all heaven. Who's worthy? Not a soul. And what does he do? He weeps. He weeps loudly. I began, verse 4, I began to weep loudly because nobody was worthy. No one. And John is in the place of despair. There is no one that is worthy to open this scroll. He has been caught up in the story of redemption and seeing the glory of God. He had got a glimpse of the throne room of eternity. And he got caught up in this story and hearing that there's no one that's worthy to open this scroll. The funny thing for me is, the ironic thing for me is that John was there at the cross. And he saw the lamb who was slain. But he's been caught up in the drama of, of heaven. And he knows that without Christ, there will only be weeping. If there is no one found who is worthy to open the scroll, then there will be no triumph for the gospel. No marriage supper with the Lamb. No new heaven, no new earth. No new life. Only weeping. Jesus is utterly necessary. Utterly necessary for every one of us. He alone is worthy to open the seals and execute God's decrees. And that brings us to five and six. Because Jesus is the lion-like lamb and the lamb-like lion, he has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. In verse five, Let's kind of read it again in light of those three observations. Verse 5, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one person who can open the scroll, namely, the lion of Judah. And the reason that he is worthy to open the scroll is because he has conquered the strength of the lion. He has conquered sin and death. Death has no grip on us anymore. We may think of it on this side. But man, ultimately, when I am loosened from this bodily shell, <laughs> oh Lord, standing for eternity forever, before my Creator. I'm only able to do that because Jesus has conquered sin and death. 
You can see that in 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. This new song that they're singing together. Worthy are you. Who? Jesus, the Lamb, the Lion. Who? And to, to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Notice carefully the relationship between five and nine. In five, the reason the lion can open the scroll is because he was conquered. In verse nine, the reason he can open the scroll is because he was slain. And by his blood ransomed men. In other words, his right to open the scroll is owing to the fact that he ransomed people for God by his death. And this ransoming was a victory. It was a victory. So what kind of lion is he? He is a lion-like lamb. The lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on his way to a throne. He was riding on a donkey into town. King David himself did not ride on this this massive white Arabian stallion. He came in. King David came in on a donkey as a king coming into Jerusalem. And here's Jesus the king of kings, coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on on his way to the throne. And he went out of Jerusalem how? On Good Friday, like a lamb on the way to slaughter. He drove out that week, he drove out the robbers from the temple like like a lion devouring his prey. I j- just imagine that. He came in with whips and he was kicking people out. Get out of here. This is to be a house of prayer and you've made it into a commerce place? Come on, get out of here. He kicked people out. Then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife and they slaughtered the, the lion of Judah like a lamb. He conquered sin and death And Satan, not just because he was a lion, but because he was a lamb-like lion. The lion gets the victory through the tactics of a lamb. Genius. Not only was he a lamb-like lion, he was a lion-like lamb. You see that here where he says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it was slain and with seven horns. Notice two things. That the lamb was standing. He was standing. It wasn't slumped in a heap on the ground as as it once was. It, it It had been slain. But now it was standing and standing in the innermost circle next to the throne in all his glory and majesty, standing up straight with all the marks that are needed to defeat sin and death. Second, notice that the lamb has seven horns. It sounds absolutely odd. But you also have to understand this is apocalyptic literature. And 
Horns are, throughout Scripture, a sign of strength and power. You see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the number of seven signifies fullness and completeness. completeness. So this is no ordinary little lamb that you just pet. It's not this cute little Easter lamb. If we would give our kids actual Easter lambs, they, they, they might be a little traumatized. But maybe they would understand the power of the resurrection. He is a lion-like lamb. So I, I need to conclude by just stressing this main point. Since Jesus is not merely just a simple thing like a lion or a lamb, but is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, he therefore is truly admirable. He is truly excellent. He is worthy to execute God's will. He is worthy to execute our redemption. And ultimately, bring glory to the name of God for the good of all people. And you can be among that number if you trust Him as your Lamb and submit to Him as your Lion and join that throne room group in worshiping the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're going to be taking communion in a little bit. This is for us an act of remembrance as we remember Christ's death the lamb that was slain for us. We just don't come up here and eat bread and, and drink some juice and we move on. We remember deeply the gospel in these moments. And in a special way, Christ is present with his church today as we gather, as we remember him as our lamb that was slain, and the lion who took control. It's an act of proclamation as we proclaim. Each time that we do this, we proclaim Jesus Christ's death until he comes. That, you know what? Jesus Christ died. And for us, man, sometimes, I, I've said this before, sometimes communion services are these funeral dirges. But in reality, this, we, we proclaim his death. Praise be to God that he has died. Because if he hadn't, we are still hopeless. Through sharing in the symbols of Christ's broken body and shed blood, we proclaim the triumph of the lamb, the triumph of the, the lion that is accomplished through the slaughter of the lamb. It is an act of worship as we offer thanks.
many churches. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper. Other churches, it's called the, the Eucharist. What does Eucharist mean? Anybody know? Come on, Dan. It's your chance. It is Thanksgiving. Thanks. So we, we come to the we come to this moment thankfully, joyfully. Eucharist. And we thank God for what He has done. It requires us, according to Scripture, to examine our hearts, examine our minds. We're not too quickly to give thanks for what we don't even recognize. I want to encourage you to be still for a moment. Recognize the, the line of the tribe of Judah coming in. with the sole purpose of his offering himself for you, for me. When you recognize, thankfully recognize, Christ's work in your life, you are welcome to come. To enjoy the, the precursor to the the meal that we will enjoy in heaven with all the saints who have gone before us. Let's take a moment to examine our hearts. Be still before God. And then we'll break bread together. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to serve our God. And they shall reign on the earth. On the night that he was betrayed... Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, at the end of the supper, he took the cup of blessing. And pouring it out, he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And those who are serving, please come forward. Come, for all things are ready.